You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. with you this morning, and it's good to be back in the Gospel of Luke. So I want to invite you now to follow along as I read God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms And blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon them. Lord, would you now bless the preaching of your word? May everything that is said 
bring glory to your name. May it strengthen your church. And may it draw the lost to the Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. September 8th, 2022, will go down in history as the day that Queen Elizabeth II died. Her death captured the world's attention for a number of reasons, not only because she was respected all over the globe, but she had reigned for 70 years. And not only that, her death marked the end of a significant era in world history, especially here in the West. The day after she died, Dr. Albert Moeller, a theologian and cultural commentator, he began to write on the significance of the closing of an era, the Elizabethan era, and what it means for us as, as, a, as a world, and how this was a unique point in world history. He went on to write a three-part um, article on this. I would encourage you to read more on, but here's just a sampling of something he said. As we consider the life legacy and the meaning of the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, Queen of the United Kingdom and of its dominions, we are looking at a major turning point in Western history. We're looking at a turning point in human history. And as we're thinking about the modern age, we need to recognize those of us who are alive today we need to recognize this transition with the death of Queen Elizabeth II of Great Britain. With the death of Queen Elizabeth, a significant era in world history came to an end. I would encourage you to read the article to find out why her death brought the end of a significant Error that we may never see in our lifetime. And Dr. Moeller makes the point, probably never in our children or grandchildren's lifetime will we see the ending of an error like this. Now, why do I bring this up? Because in the text before us today, in Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 40, we discover a similar event. At the birth of Jesus... A new era in redemptive history was beginning and an old era was coming to a close. See, when Christ came, an era had begun. A new era had begun. And that era has not ended and will not end until the return of Christ. Right now, we live between the first coming of Christ and His second coming. If we were to put a label on, what, what do we call this era in redemptive history? It is the church age. That's where we live. Between the first coming and the second coming of Christ is the church age. And in Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 40, our text for this morning, we discover 
that by coming into the world, Christ created a people who belonged to Him. There were many significant things that happened at the end of this era and the beginning of a new one. But one of the most significant things that happened is when Christ came, this new era meant He was going to have a people who were devoted significantly and exclusively to Him. And these people that He was to create they would testify that He is the Christ. And these people who Christ created and who would testify to who He is, you know what they're called? The church. If I could state most simply the point of this passage that we're going to see this morning, I would put it in a single sentence. It's going to be up here on the screen. The Lord Jesus created the church to testify that He is the Christ. What we just read this morning could be summarized in that single sentence, the Lord Jesus created the church to testify that He is the Christ. Get this. Understand the implications. The very existence of the church is proof that Jesus is the Christ. The very existence of the church is proof that Jesus is the Christ. Now, in order for you to be convinced this is the point of this passage, we, we, we must see it in the, the text. So what I want to do to serve you this morning as you're listening is I want to highlight two prominent themes that really emerge in all of the details of this passage. And there are a lot of details. You've all heard the expression, don't miss the forest for the trees. There's a lot of trees in this passage and we could miss the, the main emphasis. So in order to serve you as the listener so that you don't get lost in all of the, the details, think about these two themes that are prominent. This is our outline for this morning. We see Christ among His church and the church as a witness to Christ. Let's begin with this first theme, Christ among His church. And look at verse 21 again. Verse 21 is a transitional verse. It, it, it brings what we read about the birth of Christ to a close, and it introduces what we are reflecting on this morning. And it's one of those Verses, it's one of these verses we could just see as transitional to the point that we just kind of read it and we move right past through. Listen, this verse has a lot of weight to it and importance and significance. Look, listen to what Luke tells us. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. Luke tells us that Jesus was circumcised and he was named Jesus on the eighth day, just like John. So far, if you've been a part of this series, you, you, you remember that from the beginning, it, it was God's plan and through Luke's just, well, God's inspiration and Luke seeing the, the importance of doing this. He has been comparing John and Jesus and showing so many similarities between them. Well, John was circumcised and named on the eighth day. And now Jesus is seeing the same pattern 
take place. And we often move right past the fact that Jesus was circumcised and we pay a lot of attention to his baptism, which we're going to come to in chapter 3. But listen, his, his circumcision was significant. Why? why? Why is it important that we not just rush past this? Because it tells us something. Jesus was born under the law. Jesus was born under the law. And by telling us that, we're hearing Jesus was born under the law, but he was named Jesus, which means God saves. Don't miss the significance of Jesus' circumcision and naming. When we, when we think about these two working in tandem, we, we can understand why the Apostle Paul says what he did in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. The Apostle Paul wrote this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, this isn't simply a transitional verse. It's packed, filled with significance. In one way, it was saying the fact that Jesus was circumcised, saying he's a man under the law, but his name means God saves. He came into the world under the law to redeem us from the law. So that we're not slaves to God, but we are children of God. And the fact that Jesus was under the law continues to be emphasized by Luke in verses 22 through 24. And then again at the end of this passage in verse 39. So let me read 22 through 24 and then verse 39 again. It says, and when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses... They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the wound shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And then drop down to verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. Do you see what Luke's doing here? He's sandwiching this important story he's about to tell us about Jesus in the temple and his encounter with Simeon and Anna. And, and, Anna. and notice what he does. He sandwiches this story between this important statement about the actions of Joseph and Mary, he tells us they performed everything according to the law of God. Actually, five times the law of God is spoken of in verses 22 through 40. And why is that significant? Why should we pay attention to that? Because at this point in redemptive history, God's people were still under the old covenant and still were obeying the law of of Moses. Therefore, we're told Mary makes an offering according to the law for herself. So she does that, and Jesus then is dedicated to the Lord, and according to the law, an offering is made of 
for him because he was the first male child in that family. So he is set apart as holy. And all of this, we're told, took place in the temple. Which now brings us to verses 25 through 32. So let me read verses 25 through 32 again. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Friends, pay careful attention to what we just read. This truly devout brother named Simeon. He comes to the temple that day like he did probably most days. And he happens to be there while Jesus was being presented to the Lord. And Simeon realizes who this is. Luke tells us Simeon not only was a godly man, but he was a man that God's spirit was uniquely at work in his life. And at some point, we're not told if it was weeks before, months before, years before, he was told by the Holy Spirit, Simeon, before you die, you will lay eyes on the Messiah. You will see him for yourself, the one who will fulfill all the promises of God for his people. That's what it means when it says he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. This will be the one. All the hopes of Israel rested in this Messiah. And God made it clear through the Holy Spirit to this man, Simeon. Simeon, I will not take your last breath away until you lay eyes on him. And here comes Joseph and Mary bringing in this baby according to the law. And Simeon at some point sees him and says, Oh, 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 that day has been fulfilled. Your promise has been fulfilled. There he is. And notice what it says he did in verse 28. He took him up in his arms. And he blessed God and said. Think about what's being described here. Jesus is about to receive a testimony from Simeon in the temple in Jerusalem. And what is this testimony? That he is the Christ. Before everyone in the temple. Before Joseph and Mary, Simeon is going to give a testimony. This baby boy is the long-awaited Messiah. You see, Simeon was functioning at that moment like a prophet of old. 
And before we focus our attention on what Simeon said with his mouth, let's first pay attention to what he, who he holds in his arms. So we can just rush right to what Simeon says. Oh, but, but notice what, what Luke tells us. Who it is that he holds in his arms. Who is it? God the Savior. That's who he holds in his arms. God the Savior. See, Jesus, whom Simeon was holding, is both God and man. And he had come to earth to save his people from their sins. And, and, and this has been the unfolding story of Israel and their God. See, Simeon was holding in his hands God. Listen to what he says in verse 30. If that sounds radical, listen to what he says. For my eyes have seen your salvation. So as he holds this baby in his hands, he doesn't say, oh, this baby is going to be a means of salvation. He's going to be the hope of salvation. He is your salvation. He attributes this baby to God himself and says, this baby I hold in my hands is God the Savior. And then in verse 32, Simeon says, this, this Jesus, he will restore the true Israel and he will reveal to the nations God's saving plan. So this long-awaited Messiah, he's going to have a dual purpose. He is going to, he's going to restore the true Israel, the true people of God. And part of that restoration will be the nations are now going to come to him. But that's not all. Something else happens in verses 33 through 35. After Simeon makes this declaration, this prophetic pronouncement about this baby, he does one more thing. Verses 33 through 35, Luke tells us, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now what's going on here? Why does Simeon make this pronouncement and then after making this pronouncement bless Joseph and Mary, and look Mary in the face and say, Mary, this baby, oh, he is the Savior. But he is going to be the one who is going to cause many to rise in Israel and many to fall. And, and here's what you need to know. This may be a glorious moment and a great day. Take pictures, celebrate this special day. But this isn't the end of the story. What's going to happen at the end of his life? It's going to be like a sword through your soul. And here's what this baby you hold in your hands is going to do. He's going to reveal. He's going to reveal the true intentions of people's hearts. What, what's, he, what's he saying here? What we learn from other gospel writers and other writers of the New Testament. That Jesus will be the cornerstone in which the true house of God will be built around. But this cornerstone will also be a stumbling block for many. 
You see, just because people kept the Torah or recited and prayed the Psalms, and just because they made pilgrimages to Jerusalem, that did not make them children of Abraham and children of God. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ that we can become children of God. We learn that in Galatians, and we see it here in Luke's Gospel. There were many at this time that were coming to the temple, as we will discover more as we make our way through Luke, that are coming to the temple. And the reason they're coming is not because they have the right motives. It's not because they love the Lord. And, and this baby, he is going to do something. According to verse 35, Jesus over time is going to reveal who's really inside the kingdom and those who are really outside the kingdom. This is actually one of the major themes of Luke's gospel. We'll see it unfold many times as we make our way through this book. Here's one of the, 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 the surprising things about Luke's gospel. Luke is going to show us that many of the people we think are insiders are outsiders. And many of those we thought, oh no, those are outsiders. Luke's going to say, actually, they're insiders. And Jesus is going to be the one who's going to make that very clear. It's not about... Looks, it's not about how often you keep the law. It's not about how Jewish you are. It's not about how law-keeping you are. It's not about any of those things. Do you put your faith in Jesus Christ? But in order for Jesus to accomplish His plan and to fulfill all the promises of God, He will have to suffer for those He came to save. That's why Simeon says, Mary... This is not going to end well. Be prepared. This is a glorious day, but this isn't the end of the story. Now, Simeon was not the only one present that day in the temple testifying that Jesus was the Christ. Luke then tells us about another encounter that took place on that day in verses 36 through 38. We meet this woman named Anna. And we're told that she was advanced in years and that she had been a widow for many, many years, and that she has not departed from the temple, and she worships with fasting and prayer night and day. And at that very hour, just like Simeon came in that day, looks over, sees Joseph and Mary holding Jesus, and goes, oh my. Here's Anna doing what she always does, and she looks over, and she begins to say, to all of those who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Oh, I've got good news. You see that baby over there? All of our hope is in him. He is the one who is going to restore the kingdom of God and make all things new. Do you see what's happening here? Both Simeon and Anna represent faithful witnesses to Jesus. One a man and one a woman. Now, why do I make that point? Because this is another theme we're going to see all throughout Luke's gospel. Luke, time and time again, if you contrast him or compare him to Matthew and Mark, they're going to tell similar stories, and Matthew and Mark are not going, they're just going to mention men. And Jesus, or, or Luke, is going to time and time tell us stories where both men and women are shown to be Disciples of Jesus. 
That's going to be a major theme of Luke's gospel. Oh, there are many devoted men who followed after Jesus, but there were very devout women who left everything to follow after him. And on this day, both Simeon and Anna, they are witnesses to Jesus. And notice how both of them are described. Both Simeon and Anna are described as truly devout lovers of God. They're, they're not at the temple for show. They're not just simply there out of habit. They, they, they are there from a heart of faith. But they're not the only ones. As I said a minute ago, as we make our way through Luke's gospel, we're going to discover there are many people that are coming to Jerusalem, including the religious leaders who are foul and their, fa- their faith is false. And Jesus is going to call them out on it. It's one of the reasons they're going to kill him. And one day he's even going to walk into this temple and he's going to, he's going to curse it. Because of the, the, the kind of nonsense that's going on in there. But everyone there was not like that. See, just like the faithful remnant we met back in chapter 1. Do you remember when we met Zachariah and Elizabeth? Though there were many during this time that were just going through the motions. Playing the religious game. But they didn't have true faith. They weren't really devout. They just played the, the role. There were many like Zechariah and Elizabeth and Simeon and Anna, who really were faithful followers of the Lord. And as soon as they saw Jesus, their hearts were stirred. They weren't offended like the Pharisees. They immediately saw him and said, yes, the day we've all been waiting for has come. See, the Lord already at his birth was preparing people his own people, who would be his church, who would testify that he's the Christ. Isn't that what we see going on here? Jesus arrives, and there's already people that says, oh yeah, that's our Lord. <laughs> that's our Savior. Yes, he's here. Now that brings us to the second theme we see. The church as a witness to Christ. Now here's what I'd like us to do for just a moment. Now that we focus our attention on Christ as the main character in this story, which we should do, I want us to step back for a moment and I want us to look at the church that's present. The church is present in this passage. And in Luke's gospel up to this point, we have met many significant characters that show us what the church is like. Let's begin with one that we can just overlook, but we must not. The importance in the plan of God of babies in the womb and babies before the womb and babies outside of the womb. Why are we pro-life? Notice how the Bible speaks. God knew their plans for these children before they were even conceived. And they play a significant role in God's plan. So we meet babies before they were conceived. We meet them in the womb. We see them outside of the womb and they're a part of God's plan. And then on the flip side, we've met older couples like Zachariah and Elizabeth and Simeon and Anna. And we've met younger couples on the opposite spectrum like Joseph and Mary. You realize Mary was probably a teenage girl. So we've met these older couples and now we meet these younger couples. We've met men and women. We've met couples and then we have this widow and Anna. We've seen Jews and Gentiles. There's been shepherds and priests. And let's not forget about Luke who we find out is a doctor from the Apostle Paul. 
So we have white collar and blue collar. We have the poor. It's interesting we can just move right past this. But if you go back and you read what the law demanded. When we're told that Joseph and Mary brought two pigeons or two turtle doves. That's actually not what the law required. The law says if you can't afford that, you can bring these things. So guess what we learn about Mary and Joseph? They didn't have much. So we see the the poor, and and then contrast that with this man whom this book is written to, Theophilus. Now, we can't say a lot about him, and so we don't want to speculate too much. But there's good reason to believe, going back to week one, that this man, Theophilus, the reason Luke's dedicating this book to him, he's probably the patron who's paying for this whole thing to be written. This was an expensive endeavor. There aren't publishing companies. So here we have Mary and Joseph and Theophilus. Do you see it now? The church of Christ is made up of people from different ages and backgrounds and genders and socioeconomic places from different jobs, whether priests or shepherds, whether single or married or divorced or widowed. The church is the place where the Lord Jesus created to testify that he is the Christ. That's what we see. Up to this point in Luke's gospel, we have come across many different kinds of of people, and they've all are a part of God's plan. Reflecting on this, I believe, has two important implications for us. I bet you could guess what these two implications are. First one, the church needs you. The flip side is you need the church. That's the implications of this passage. The church needs you. If we could just step back for a moment and and, and let's go back to Joseph and Mary and their role in this story. We never want to make more of, of, of characters than we make of Christ, but we also don't want to ignore people that God was using and the way they're spoken of, the way they're often commended. We have this couple, Joseph and Mary, And they model for us faithfulness and obedience to God as a young couple. That's what they model to us. Think about the portrait that's been painted by Luke of Mary. He doesn't tell us a lot, but here's what we can take away from his descriptions. She might have been young in age, but she's mature in faith. Is that an understatement or or is that an overstatement? I think that's true. Though she may be young in age, she's mature in faith. And though Luke doesn't tell us anything about Matthew or or Joseph, the gospel writer Matthew does. And here's the portrait he paints of Joseph. Joseph was godly and cared about doing what was pleasing to God even when it was costly to him personally. Do you remember? See, we often forget this story because of all of our nativity scenes and all of that. We've sanitized this. Can you imagine being Joseph and Mary says, "Um, I I need to tell you something. I'm expecting. And Joseph had every right to divorce her. But God through an angel said, don't. Here's why. It was costly for him. We forget that. It was costly. And yet he obeyed the Lord. And then later on, especially if this couple we find out is is a poor couple, what do they do? 
knowing that Jesus' life is on the line, they pick up from their hometown and move to Egypt for several years because God told Joseph, you need to do that. And he obeys. See, Joseph and Mary are a wonderful example to us about the, the role that young couples play not only in the plan of God, but in the church. So if you're a young couple here, especially if you have children, I want you to know how much we as a church are grateful for you and for your example. I want you to know as a church, we are cheering you on. And if there's ways we can serve you and come alongside you, please let us know. We're, we're grateful. As I look around this room, I see a number. Whether you consider yourself a young couple or not, if you're a younger couple with younger children, I just want to encourage you. We're so grateful that you are part of this church. You, you are a vital part of this church. And I'm grateful that you are seeing the importance of bringing your children to church and coming to church and being a part of the church. And if you're not a younger couple and you don't have younger children, can I encourage you to find ways to bless and to encourage and to help these couples? If you remember what it was like when you were a young couple and you were thinking, I have no idea what I'm doing. And then you got these little rugrats running around exhausting you and you don't know what you're doing. And you try to show up at church with this, mm, yeah, we're good. And what people didn't just see in the minivan when you pulled up. And, and, and you, need, you need other people to come along and say, hey, I've been there. You're going to make it. I'm for you. Praying for you. Can I babysit your children? Can I serve you? Is there any way I can help? If you're not in that season, would you just find ways, if you're not already, to serve the younger couples? Now, let me draw our, our attention now to another demographic, to Simeon. Simeon represents an older, godly man, a man with a heart for the Lord. I just want you to know, if, you, if you're an older man in this church, I would want you to know that your example of faithfulness and godliness is crucial to the health of this church. It really is. And I'm grateful that for our over 40-year history, God has provided throughout all our seasons godly men, but especially older godly men who have modeled for us all faithfulness and obedience to the Lord. And I just want to say, if you're, you're in that category, thank you. I, you may never know how much your example means to this church. But I wanted to take a moment this morning to say, you, you are a gift to this church and you are needed in this church. And we are thankful that you are in this church. Lastly, let's, let's look again at Anna. She, she's an example of two things. She's an example of a godly woman. A godly woman who's given of her life to serve by way of prayer and prophetic ministry. We don't know all of her story. All we do know is at some point her husband died. Instead of growing bitter, instead of becoming idle, she gives her days to the Lord in prayer and in prophetic ministry. She's an example of, of such a godly woman. And she's also a model for every senior saint. I love this. She gave the remaining years of her life serving the Lord and his people. 
That's the picture we get of Anna. If you're in that stage and season of life, can I encourage you to make Anna your model? I want to give the remaining years of my life serving the Lord in whatever capacity, in whatever ways. And once again, as I look around this room, and I know that there are some here this morning that um, are there are some that are not here this morning that model this, but for those who are, for those who are in our church who model that in the last years of your life, you, you are serving the Lord, thank you. Once again, your example is so important to us as a church. Now, teenagers, I haven't forgotten about you. Just here's what you need to know. You need to hang on till next week because next week we're going to look at the important role you play as teenagers in the life of the church. You know why that is? Because next week we're going to fast forward from when Jesus was a baby to when he was 12. Did you know that Jesus used to be a teenager? <laughs> I think there's some encouraging things you can learn. So I will encourage you next week, but I do want you to know you're a valuable part of this congregation. I could say more, but let me flip to the other side of this exhortation. Not only does the church need us, you and I need the church. Let's, let's return to this summary statement one last time. I, I said that you could summarize this entire message with this single sentence, the Lord Jesus created the church to testify that he is the Christ. You know what that means? The church not only exists because of Christ, the church exists for Christ. The church not only exists because of Christ, the church exists for Christ, and the church testifies to us and to the world that Jesus is the Christ. Don't miss something in this text. I think, once again, we can just move right past. Look at verse 33. After Simeon makes this declaration about this baby they hold in her hand, Luke tells us, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Now, we can just move right past that. But think about what's being said there. They didn't hear that and say, well, of course, we've had angels come tell us those things. Thanks, Simeon, for letting us know. No, they still needed the testimony of others. As Mary held that baby and Joseph and all that they had to sacrifice and were continuing to sacrifice, they would not forget those words by Simeon. They needed those words. They were ministered to when Simeon says, oh, oh, your baby boy. He is the hope of the world. It didn't just mean something to everyone else. It meant something to them. They were ministered to. And this is not the first time this has happened. For time's sake, we won't go back there. But look in chapter 2, verses 17 through 19. We're told that when the shepherds came and they announced everything, it says Mary heard it and she treasured these things in her heart. We just hear that as some little sentimental, oh, she treasured it in her heart. You know what that meant? Mary put it aside so that day when she's looking at Jesus, her son hanging on the cross, she remembered. She needed those words as much as anyone else needed those words. The church testifies. And think about what Anna's doing in verse 38. We're told that she 
was speaking to all of those who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Listen, one of the ways we know that Jesus is the Christ and the Savior of the world is by being with his people. Have you ever thought about that? Remember what Luke said the, the whole goal of him writing this orderly account was back in chapter 1? He said he wrote this so that we would have certainty. Do you know one of the ways God in his kindness has given us to know that Jesus is the Christ and the Savior? It's by being with his people. By being with God's people, we begin to see in a very profound way that he's real. His words are true. He's not a myth. Let's, let's, let's not miss something that's even right in front of us again. Think, think about this very book we're reading and reflecting on this morning. The gospel according to Luke. Yes, it was divinely inspired like all the books of the Bible. All 66 books were divinely inspired. But let's not forget the human side of this. Guess what? Think about who Luke is. Luke had never met Jesus and he believes everything he has heard about him. So much so that he is now writing to this man Theophilus to give him certainty about his faith. See, we need the testimony of other believers. We need to be around other Christians. It does something to us. So if you're here this morning and you lack certainty about Jesus, there are many things I can encourage you to do. Some I've already done in the weeks leading up to now and more we will talk about in the days ahead. But can I encourage you, if you lack certainty about Jesus, let me encourage you, hang out with Christians. Keep coming to church. There's something tangible. It doesn't mean you're not going to see problems, that they're all going to be perfect. There won't be anything that will be disappointing or disillusioning. But I can tell you what, you're going to see people whose lives are changed. Because if you're going to believe something and buy into something, you want to say, is, is that really, is there really a payoff? And you look at these people and you say, I don't know that there could be greater joy in a broken world than these people have. I don't know that there's a peace that could be given more than these people have peace. So I want to encourage you, if that's you, to keep hanging around Christians, keep coming to church, keep asking questions. And if you are a Christian, I want you to consider this. One of the chief ways God will cause you and enable you to grow as a disciple of Jesus is through the church. If time Permitted, we could go through a number of places, especially in the writings of Paul, where Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. We need the example, the teaching, the model of others. So I hope you now see from Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 40, that the church exists because of Christ. And the church exists to testify to Christ. Therefore, listen, therefore the church is a gift from Christ. The church exists because of Christ, and the church exists to testify to Christ. Therefore, the church is a gift from Christ. And I am fully aware that the church is not always glamorous. It's not always exciting. 
But I hope you are convinced of this. The church is essential to your faith. You and I, we need the church if we're going to remain faithful to God. And the world needs the church. So here's my closing question to you. Are you fully taking advantage of God's gift in the church? If this is a sweet gift, a precious gift, are you, are you fully taking advantage of it? It's a question I would want you to linger on and think about. Are you just showing up and leaving? Have you built relationships? Do you just come on Sundays but don't come to other things? I, I just encourage you. I, I, don't, I don't bring any of this up to, to guilt you. I want you to ask yourself the question, if, if the church is a gift, from Christ, that's meant to point you to Christ, are you taking full advantage of this gift? Do you see how necessary and beneficial it is to be with the people of God? If not, I want to encourage us all, especially as we begin a new year, to, to say, where do I need to adjust my priorities? Because I want, I want to receive and benefit from this gift called the church. So may we leave here with our eyes on Christ and this precious gift he's given us called the church. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this reminder that you have created a people for your glory who are to testify to who you are and that that's a gift to us. May we in the new year May we take full advantage of this precious gift. And may our faith be strengthened. May we grow in our knowledge and our maturity and our Christ-likeness. And one of the means I, I pray that you would use in all of this is us benefiting from the body of Christ. So Lord, help us now to receive the word you've given to us this morning as the word from you and a word that is good and a word that we would be wise to receive and to apply. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.